Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Podcast, presented by Canon Press. Welcome to the podcast. This is episode 279. That's kind of hard to believe, right? 279. I'm Douglas Wilson. This is the podcast. So I want to talk a little bit about mere Christendom. Uh, I've got a book coming out shortly. And by the time you hear this, it may be already be out. It's, it's coming out this May. And it has generated some discussion with some of our Baptist brothers. Uh, Scott Annual with um, with G3 has written a review of the book. We sent him an ARC of the book, and he uh, had an engaging and critical uh, response to it. And I want to talk about certain things that cause Presbyterians and Baptists to talk past each other on this issue. Now, there are a number of people who are friendly to the mere Christendom project who are Baptists. And there are people who are jumpy about it because they are Baptists. And I think that this has more to do with eschatology than it does, than it does with the, the doctrines of baptism themselves. This is not to say that the doctrine of credo-baptism or paedo-baptism is irrelevant to a Christian nation, because that is one of the things that will have to be worked out. So, for example, in a Christian republic, if if you have any kind of um, boundaries or definitions for office holders or for electors, people who vote, that sort of thing that's connected to your, if your citizenship and your profession of faith are at all connected, then, of course, credo-baptism is going to be directly related to that. So, uh, do, do, does, does someone get to vote if they're not baptized? If, you know, let's say they are, they grew up in a Christian home, they turned 18, they've not made a profession of faith yet, do they get to vote? Now, Stephen Wolf in his book, The Case for Christian Nationalism, says that, of course, there is a place for Baptists in the, uh, in the Christian nationalism project and I would I would echo that I would agree with that and but Stephen Wolf says that because he's Presbyterian and he's functioning with a Presbyterian outlook somebody else is going to have to do the spade work for uh, how a Christian nation and the the confession of Christ's resurrection and lordship on on the part of that nation would relate to individuals, and their own profession of faith. That's something that Wolf says, I think rightly, that the Baptists themselves have to work out. I would suggest that the thing that we're going to have to do first to enable Baptists to work it out would be to work through our eschatology. I think um, a post-millennial eschatology is going to be a doctrinal key that helps us sort through some of these things. So, for example, the gang at Apologia down in Arizona, Jeff Durbin and James White, Je um, those guys are optimistic in their eschatology. They're, they are post-mill. And you'll notice that Jeff Durbin has no problem at all 
uh, showing up at city council meetings and telling the magistrates what God would have them do. <laughs> now, he's, he's a Baptist, and he's engaged with the, in the public square. He is calling the magistrate to righteous action. And as he's doing this, he is doing this as a Baptist. And I don't see any contradiction or tension in his position. I think it, it looks consistent to me. Now, I wouldn't approach it the same way, or perhaps uh, I would, uh, well, I would approach it the same way as with regard to eschatology, and I'm sure that I would agree with many of the things that Jeff was exhorting the, uh, uh, the magistrates to do. I think, I suspect that our divergence would come farther on down the road after uh, the magistrates have started to listen to us. Uh, once they've done that, then, of course, you have to figure out, <laughs> um, all right, who gets to make decisions, who gets to hold office, that sort of thing. So, in the Mere Christendom Project, it is, of course, the case that the society at large will not confess the Lordship of Jesus Christ unless and until a large number of voters and office holders are doing the same thing individually. They will, as they do it individually, then they come together in a society, in a, in a culture, and do it corporately. You're not going to have a society confess the Lordship of Jesus Christ where all the office holders and all the electors do not individually confess him. So, uh, this is to simply reassure our, our Baptist friends who are nervous about Christian nationalism or who are nervous about this whole mere Christendom project because Baptists were mistreated by paedo-Baptists centuries ago. I think that that is a, um, a jumpiness that is A, understandable, and B, it's long past time that we got over that. The American settlement of uh, the state not taking sides between Christian denominations, I think, was a true settlement, and it worked for several centuries. It was not, it's not a pipe dream. It's not something that can't happen. So, I would encourage the discussion on mere Christendom to look first to the issues of eschatology and secondarily to the issues of the sacraments. Always will be God. So, continuing on with podcast episode 279, uh, we've been conducting this course in hamartiology for over five years now. Yeah, we should be experts in sin by this point. Uh, how, how are you doing? Are you doing well with that? The, the word for this week is epipatheo, epipatheo, which refers to an intense longing. Now, of course, there's nothing particularly wrong with an intense longing, and there are a number of times in Scripture when a longing is referred to as an innocent sort of thing. An example of that would be found in Romans 1.11, for I long to see you. There it is, for I long to see you, Paul says, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift, to the end you may be established. So, this is a noble and a righteous and a godly longing. He, uh, Paul wants to um, impart to the Romans his spiritual gift, he lo and he longs to do so. But because the world is a fallen place, it's not difficult to get any kind of 
intense longing to go astray. And Scripture refers to it in, an, in at least one place as a necessarily sinful thing. In one place, it is rendered as a sinful lust. And that would be James 4, 5. Do ye think that the Scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? Do you think that the Scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? Veers toward envy, tends toward envy, has an intense longing to be envious. Now, in the spirit of fair-mindedness, I should say that a number of versions render this verse as not referring to sinful envy, but rather to God yearning jealously over his spirit in us. Uh, and there is an ambiguity that allows it to be interpreted, translated that way, but I don't, I don't take it that way. That chapter, chapter 4 of James, chapter 4 of uh, the epistle of James, starts out explaining where conflicts among us rise. James asks, where do conflicts arise? Why, are all, why do these fights develop in um, Christian congregations? And I think this rendering of verse 5 makes the best sense in the larger context. He's trying to explain why we uh, fall out uh, with each other so readily, why we have collisions so readily. And because he's trying to explain that, I think uh, the spirit in us veering toward envy, yearning toward envy, longing to be envious, uh, lusting to envy makes, uh, m- makes much uh, better sense with that. Continuing on with the podcast, episode 279, uh, the book I'd like to review is, well, review might not be the word, but you'll see in a minute. Uh, The book is Over 70 by uh, P.G. Woodhouse. Uh, Over 70 by P.G. Woodhouse. Now, this book is something of a semi-memoir. P.G. Woodhouse uh, wrote numerous plays short stories, and novels. Overlook Press has got uh, an edition of his works. Uh, like There's like 90 uh, of the books. A number of years ago, well, probably over 10 years ago, Nancy and I were visiting uh, the Merkels over in Oxford uh, while Ben was there getting his defil at Oxford. And I noticed uh, that um, they had a copy of a Woodhouse title, Jill the Reckless, and it was in this nice little uh, Overlook uh, edition, hardback um, uh, edition. And I started to read it there and then ordered a copy when we were home so I could uh, finish it. And I decided, you know, I'd been reading Woodhouse for decades, but in and out, and sometimes I'd reread books, and that I thought I need to systematically read uh, through. All of his stuff, and so I started. I started with um, Jill the Reckless, and then I would be partway through one, and then order one or two others, and always be chipping away at at a Woodhouse some at some rate of speed or other. And by this method, I'm um, almost done. So he he, uh, like I said, wrote over ninety books, and I'm probably within four or five of being done. And this one, over 70, is the the one I just most recently completed. Now, most of his books are light fiction. You know, the, there's the Jeeves and Wooster 
set, and there's also the Blandings Castle, Lord Emsworth uh, set, where some some of his books spread across numerous titles, some of his worlds, uh, the Jeeves and Wooster world spread across numerous t- uh, titles, and the Blandings Castle spreads across numerous titles, and then he's got a number of one-offs and, and, and so on. This book is, autob- is kind of an autobiographical memoir uh, and sort of random uh, thoughts that Woodhouse is thinking while he is sketching out things that he did over the course of his writing life. Now, he sometimes gets distracted. It's not a highly disciplined memoir. You're not going to get an arc that explains his life. He he doesn't go into detail like that. He's emphasizing mostly things he's written and and his writing processes, but it's still greatly, uh, uh, highly enjoyable. When I read Woodhouse, I don't, his plotting is generally ingenious, but I don't really read him for the plots. I read him for the metaphors. I read him for the turns of phrase, and there's generally one on every page. In this book, Over 70, uh, he describes one reviewer who um, dismissed Woodhouse as a, quote, burbling pixie. Burbling pixie. Uh, Woodhouse was quite taken with this and repeated that a number of a number of times. If you want a glimpse into how Woodhouse would write, uh, how he thought of himself while writing, his uh, take on the publishing industry, this will not be a detailed memoir where you learn all the all the uh, all the facts. But you're gonna you're going to. Um, learn a bit, and it's going to be with, uh, with Woodhouse's uh, standard aplomb, his standard uh, wit, his, uh, his way of expressing himself. It really just uh, just an enjoyable book, Over 70 by P.G. Woodhouse. Mm-hmm. 